When just 16 teams existed in baseball, the game was played in just a handful of ballparks. Today, only Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park, and Wrigley Field remain. The others make up the lost ballparks of the Golden Age. I would have dearly loved to have spent uh, one year in the decade of the 50s broadcasting big league baseball and to work at Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds and Sportsman's Park in St. Louis and Scheib Park in Philadelphia. I'm one of the few people who like the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which they call the mistake by the lake. I pitched in the first night game ever played in Cleveland in 1939. Beat the Detroit Tigers on a one-hitter. It was a great ballpark. I kind of hate to see it go. It was this wonderful, embracing, double-decker ballpark. If you were setting down the baselines in an upper-deck box, you had one of the greatest seats in baseball. I mean, you were right on top of the action. They were neighborhood ballparks. And they fit into the contours and the crosses of, of the streets. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All righty then. How are you, friends? It's Tim Hanlon. Yep, it's Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. I uh, thank you tremendously for finding us, and I hope we uh, delight you a little bit this week. Uh, As we uh, go back into baseball, which we uh, certainly love doing, uh, there's no shortage of stories and things to to explore in baseball's rich tableau of history. Uh, And this week, we're going to have a little extra fun spin into a dimension that we've kind of hinted at in some of our earlier episodes, uh, certainly around things like Shea Stadium, for example, our uh, 1975 exploration there, that fun and interesting year of housing four professional teams in one season there. Certainly our journeys into uh, places like the Polo Grounds and League Park in Cleveland. And a lot of that's basically been born in history and sort of the anecdotes around that. But uh, we're going to kind of focus our energies around a a bigger narrative, a more thoughtful one around the role of architecture. Our guest this week is uh, probably the most preeminent writer and uh, critic of architecture uh, in the United States. His name is Paul Goldberger, and you may know him from his uh, work as an architecture critic for Vanity Fair and the longtime architecture critic, uh, The New Yorker, as well as his groundbreaking work at The New York Times, winning a Pulitzer Prize, for God's sakes. I mean, if anybody understands architecture, it's probably Paul. And this week, our excuse to talk to him is uh, his book that is just out, uh, came out in uh, about May, I think, a couple of months ago, called Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. And the narrative that he and we get into in our conversation in just a few moments to me is a fascinating one. And some of it is obvious, but frankly, a lot of it is is really not. And it's this sort of intersection or, or intertwining, I guess, of how we as Americans, as people living in cities and suburbs, et cetera, and the sport of baseball has grown up in the midst of all of that and uh, are frankly changing attitudes and natures and, and I guess our lens upon which or in which we want to enjoy this sport which, of course, we've all seen over the last many decades, you know, grown up from sort of this uh, rough and tumble sort of amateur pursuit into, frankly, the biggest of pro sports businesses. 
And the history of the environment in which this game has been played is fascinating. And the architectural wonder of a ballpark and uh, the juxtaposing of this thing called a field in which baseball is played set certainly in its earliest days in the midst of the most dense urban environments where you're plopping down a beautiful green field and diamond into uh, the midst of urban hustle and bustle and industry and 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 people and apartment buildings and and skyscrapers and all that kind of stuff it's a higher order conversation and i i was delighted to have it and i hope you will enjoy it as much as i did and you know if you squint back and look back into uh, sports history and and you wax nostalgic for you know places like the polo grounds or ebbets field or Forbes Field in Pittsburgh or the old Scheib Park in Philadelphia or hell, even the two longest lasting uh, remaining Golden Age ballparks of Wrigley Field in Chicago or Fenway Park in Boston. I mean, you 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 have a sense of all this stuff and it's worth sort of exploring a little bit more deeply as to the relationship between the uh, ballparks and the stadiums in which baseball is played and has been played juxtaposed with uh, the history of this country and how cities and suburbs and all those things have developed. There's so many more questions that I think this conversation led to, but I I highly encourage you to not only listen uh, to this chat with Paul, but also his book ballpark baseball in the American city is a, is a wonderful read and it's less an encyclopedia than it is a narrative. And I, there are plenty of books out there, both in photographic and in written form that uh, go very deep into sort of the nooks and crannies of history of ballparks in this country over the many years. But uh, this one uh, is more, again, of a, of a story about sort of how and why, I guess, uh, the way in which these stadiums have evolved and were built and created and placed and succeeded or failed. Much uh, higher order sort of conversation uh, and architecturally at that. Let's be honest, there have been plenty of parks that have certainly uh, earned the name stadium and, and ballpark and, and, and uh, a right to be remembered lovingly uh, as we look in the past, but there are plenty of just as many, maybe even more that uh, have not uh, sort of met that bar of quality and, and memory. And uh, I'm sure we can lament about some of those uh, concrete donuts as we talk about those, those multi-purpose stadiums in which baseball was played for many years, the artificial turf invasion and all those things. And frankly, now, as we look forward, I think there's a lot of retro, right? Certainly the, uh, the Camden Yards structure in Baltimore, probably sort of the leading edge of that from the the mid-1990s and onward. And we get into, you know, sort of the uh, return to the old, I guess, with our conversation with Paul, but also a little bit of a what we think is in store maybe for baseball and where it is played and how it is played in the years to come. All of it, just a fascinating chat. And uh, I encourage you to listen to all of it uh, coming up in just a few moments, again, with our guest, Paul Goldberger coming right up. But before we get there, I want to say hello and welcome again to our great friends at The Great Courses Plus, our sponsor this week. And I think timely and kismet in that it is something that we're trying to feature this week because uh, their uh, great series called Play Ball is part of The Great Courses Plus service. And that is done in conjunction with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, this Play Ball series. It is a lecture series that I think you will find fascinating. It doesn't get into nostalgia or sort of doesn't sort of hijack you into uh, memories in the hagiography, but it's literally a course survey of some of the earliest days and scenarios around uh, baseball's history. And I think you'll find it fascinating as I have so far. 
Uh, it's called Play Ball. It is uh, narrated and taught by Bruce Markison from the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. It is available for you, all 24 courses worth, for free. Yep, free. A free month of The Great Courses Plus service is yours. Uh, when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats, and for a limited time, you'll get a, an entire free month's worth of The Great Courses Plus service, including, of course, Play Ball, the uh, series based and devoted to, based on and base, uh, baseball, he says. He's stumbling through it. He's trying to get through it. He will around uh, baseball's earliest years. But as you probably know by now, if you've listened to a couple of episodes with our sponsors here with The Great Courses Plus, you will know that it is not just about baseball, but The Great Courses Plus is a trove of unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. And they, they talk about all kinds of great topics around things like science and history and hobbies and professional and personal development, things like health and fitness. I mean, there's just no end, it seems, to all of the topics and areas of interest uh, that are presented to you at The Great Courses Plus. And uh, of course, the history of baseball is just a part of it, but hopefully the hook for you all in our listening audience uh, to give The Great Courses Plus a try. And again, a free month is yours when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats and enjoy on us a free month of the service play ball and all the other things available to you it's available online there's an app there uh, you can stream it to any device and that app is amazing because not only uh, does it support any device but uh, you can download ahead of time if you don't uh, think you're going to be near a broadband connection for uninterrupted streaming or if you can't just uh, view the lectures online or on a screen you can listen to it in audio only format as well it's a tremendous service it's a great way to learn uh, it doesn't feel like learning. There's no tests. There's no exams. None of that kind of stuff. There's no grading, but it's all fascinating stuff. And if you uh, fancy yourself as somebody who likes to learn on an ongoing basis, this is the service for you. It's called The Great Courses Plus. And again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Uh, go there and get your free month. Why don't you? And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy all of the stuff that's uh, available to you to try, including, of course, play ball and we thank of course the great courses plus for their sponsorship of our little show and uh, we of course thank you for listening each and every week and hopefully you will enjoy as i did uh, this week's conversation with our guest paul goldberger he the author of ballpark baseball in the american city it's a great conversation i learned a ton and here it is Give our audience a sense of your background, right? Because uh, this is kind of your first real official foray into, uh, I guess, the realm of sports structures. But uh, what is your actual really, you know, your day job and, and it got you to this point before this book? Sure. Well, my life has really been about, my professional life has been writing about architecture. And I've done all kinds of things over the years, uh, both books and journalism and was architecture critic for the New York Times for many years and... Uh, architecture critic at the New Yorker magazine and writer at Vanity Fair and so forth. So I've done a lot of writing. The the common theme has always been architecture, buildings, cities, but also historic preservation and older things, which I particularly love. And uh, But I've always also always been a big baseball fan. And uh, back in my years at the New York Times, the only times I ever appeared in the sports section were occasional times when there'd be a new ballpark and I would insist that I would write about it as if it were any other important building like a museum or a concert hall or a new skyscraper or what have you. 
And so they would indulge me, and I would uh, do a column for the sports section. On, I remember writing about uh, what was then Jacobs Field, now Progressive uh, Field in Cleveland, and the ballpark at Arlington, and of course about um, uh, Camden Yards in Baltimore, because uh, during the years of all those things in the 90s was back when I was at the New York Times. And uh, so, you know, there's always been a kind of interest, actually, since childhood, really, in ballparks. When I was at the New Yorker about uh, 10 years ago now, I guess, when City Field and the new Yankee Stadium opened in New York, I was asked to write a, an architecture column about these two things, these two places. And uh, as I researched it, I realized, in a way, maybe I hadn't realized before how deep the whole connection is between baseball and cities and how you know older ballparks really were so deeply ingrained into their neighborhoods uh, newer ones often less so but how there was also a new attempt being made to kind of reintegrate the ballpark into the city post Camden Yards and that uh, and then this revelation kind of hit me that it kind of mirrored the whole way our culture looks at cities that uh, uh, baseball sort of tracks American urbanism, you could say. I mean, we, uh, from the early years when we naturally were kind of building tight, dense urban neighborhoods to the suburban years when people were building big structures surrounded by acres of parking that accommodated to the automobile, maybe more than they accommodated to people, to the return to the cities that Camden Yards represented and so many of the ballparks that follow that uh, really mirrors the return to the cities in a larger sense with, with younger generations choosing to live back in the city rather than in the suburbs. So that's really became the book that, that uh, baseball, baseball show, tells you the story of the American city but it's also a story of baseball, obviously. You know, it's not it's not a book about urban planning. It's a book about a sport and how deeply ingrained this sport has been into our culture throughout its whole history. Yeah, but urban urban planning certainly right. Uh, even to the, the the most diehard of sports fans uh, is unavoidable, especially in today's modern age, right? With with politics and and the economics and 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 you know, can, yeah, does tax money pay for it and all that kind of stuff? But totally, totally, that's a huge issue. Um, I don't deal in the book that much with the economic issue, uh, not because I don't think it's important, but because you know that that one has been dealt with a fair amount. There, there are entire books that have been written studying that. I think it's also an issue in which um, it's, it's not unique to baseball the way some of the other things that I really focus more on in the book are. You know, in fact, if anything, I think uh, holding communities up for public money is something the NFL is actually far more guilty of than uh, uh, Major League Baseball, although Major League Baseball has done its share. But yes, it's absolutely a key point but also the whole question of just, you know, the, 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 the physical impact of a ballpark on a city, what it means for a city, um, how it impacts on the image of a city, how it impacts on the functioning of a city. I really felt it this past week when I was in Cleveland, uh, where, you know, of course, the All-Star game was, was played, uh, and seeing how, 
having progressive field, you know, right there in the center of Cleveland, kind of lifted the whole city in a really wonderful way. Did you get a chance to go to uh, the museum around League Park, which we've had a couple of conversations about in previous uh, uh, episodes, mm-hmm. obviously, which was part mm-hmm. of the of the mixture in Cleveland, which you talk about in... in yes, in- yes. I did go to, I did actually go to League Park. It was wonderful to see. Uh, you know, I, I wish more of the original uh, uh, ballpark structure had remained, but in fact, that lovely little uh, building that was built as a kind of ticket sales pavilion a few years after the original ballpark was built remains and has become the museum. And then the whole field is still there. And you can, you can really feel how much that was a part of that neighborhood of the old Huff neighborhood in, in uh, Cleveland. It was wonderful to see, actually. I, I loved being there. It was one of the highlights of my time in Cleveland, I would say, actually. Well, well, and it makes an interesting point to kind of jump into. So I will kind of jump around here. I don't want to necessarily just go linearly from, from how you do it in the book. But, I mean, Cleveland's a very interesting asterisk, I guess, in all of this, right? Because uh, it does straddle, I think Cleveland does, some of the themes that you sort of uh, outline uh, in this book, right? Where, where League Park essentially was sort of part of this uh, transition from uh, the original sort of wood structures to the sort of steel and stone kind of era. Yes. And then and a municipal stadium, which, you know, slowly but surely drained all of baseball and then obviously football with it to sort of more the cathedral model. I don't know. Maybe you can use that as sort of as a jumping off point of maybe explaining a little bit more of those sort of, I don't call them eras, but sort of your, your thematics, I guess, which fit in there. Well, you know, it's interesting because in each case, the Cleveland, uh, in each of those two generations, Cleveland was a little bit ahead of other places, which doesn't necessarily make the results better, but it, they were certainly earlier. For example, you know, League Park was very early. It was first, uh, the original sections of it dated from 1891. So it actually kind of almost goes back into the, the wooden era of ballparks in the 19th century, uh, although it was remade and and tweaked it over the years as so many of these places were. Uh, so it's a very early example. It's, it really goes back to before what we think of as the real golden age, which begins, you know, around 1909 with, um, Scheib park in Philadelphia and Forbes field in, um, Pittsburgh. And, uh, so, so league park was early, but, but wonderful in its way. And, exactly as you say, you know, deeply integrated into uh, the neighborhood. And you really feel its connection to the street, to the houses around it, everything. Uh, And then Cleveland, very early on, in 1931, um, literally decades before uh, other cities were doing this, decides it wants a big, multi-purpose stadium big enough for anything, not just baseball, and that the city is going to pay for it, which was utterly and completely unprecedented in, uh, in baseball. And they build the huge municipal stadium. Uh, in fact, uh, it proved to be, uh, well, something of a disaster, basically. <laughs> you know, it was... Terrible for baseball because it was just enormous, 80,000 seats, and uh, the bleachers were so far away that, you know, you felt, I mean, you basically couldn't see much of anything from them. Uh, They 
almost never filled it up. Um, it uh, was so empty most of the time that the uh, Cleveland Indians went back to League Park and used League Park for most of their regular midweek home games and only played there on uh, weekends, holidays, and any other game where there would seem to be some reason to anticipate a bigger crowd. But, you know, the sort of place where, you know, you could sell 20,000, 25,000 tickets, which would look, which would make League Park essentially full. And uh, it would they it would look like the game was a failure because no one had come because it would look empty. So that was a real problem. And uh, the municipal stadium also inaugurated the the whole practice of public financing, which uh, led, as you've just said, to you know a lot of problems over the years in so many cities that go far beyond baseball with football as well. It was uh, unfortunate, although in a way. You know, it's not really the same because Cleveland initiated this whole thing. It was not as though they were held up by a team that threatened to leave town if they didn't get a good deal. This was all the city's own project. So uh, in, in that sense, it's different. But Cleveland was ahead of the curve with both, both generations. Uh, and then um, finally, when it uh, built Jacobs Field, now, now Progressive, in uh, 1994, it uh, kind of caught up with the larger zeitgeist. And although there too, I guess you could say Cleveland was kind of also a little bit early because it was one of it was one of the very first cities to follow the example of Camden Yards and uh, do a really good baseball-only downtown ballpark based on the Camden Yards model. Yeah, so let's talk about Camden Yards, because obviously that's a, that's a very pivotal uh, point, and, and obviously it it, it kind of it may seems kind of uh, backwards, but I think this will be helpful for the audience, right? Because that's it's a real, you know, turning point, right, in terms of a bunch of things, some of which you've hinted at, but 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 why is Camden Yards in the early 1990s sort of sort of the, uh, I guess, the, the linchpin, I guess, between which you could argue is the, the past of baseball structures and the various eras and perhaps what we're kind of still in the midst of today, albeit in, you know, more modern convenience form. Right. Well, Camden Yards was in a sense revolutionary because before Camden Yards, we had been building things that sort of in a way followed the model of Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Uh, they weren't uh, quite as enormous um, many of them were more successful, but they were still big, enormous, generally multi-purpose stadiums built for football as well as baseball and generally suburban outside of the city, surrounded by acres of parking. And they were becoming increasingly standardized, which I think is another thing that violates the, the, the ethos, we might say, of baseball. You know, it was not an accident that... Uh, Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia and uh, Riverfront in um, Cincinnati and Three Rivers in Pittsburgh all kind of looked the same, and uh, and there were more. That's just some of them. So there was a real sense that 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 had run its course, and I think it was it was driven partly by a larger sense in architecture at that point that that modern architecture had not fulfilled all of its promises and people missed 
some of the comfort and ease of older places and some of the warmth of older places. Uh, there was also an increasing sense that we had lost touch with something that was almost in the, in the soul of baseball. And we needed to try to get it back one way or another. And uh, so uh, Camden Yards was what did it. You know, it's a, it's a sort of remarkable story because it really is the story of less of an architect than of a client. The architects, uh, which was the uh, sports uh, facilities division of a large international firm called HOK, which did a lot of ballparks, um, had originally presented a design that was yet another of these concrete donuts. And the management of the Orioles said, no, that's not what we want. And uh, we're going to find ourselves another architect if we have to, unless you can come up with something better. And they went back and they produced essentially what, what we all see now in Baltimore. And it was you know, notable, I think, for quite a number of reasons. Um, I mean, it, it, it's often described as a retro ballpark, but that's an oversimplification because while it has some details in it, some elements in it that that definitely recall the old traditional ballparks and some decoration, and it's kind of brick and steel rather than heavy concrete. Um, definitely, that's that's the case. In a way, it's almost more remarkable for the way in which they managed to integrate the demands of a contemporary ballpark with more of a feel of an old one. So, in other words, it's not literally going back to Ebbets Field or Fenway or Wrigley or what have you. Um, it, you know, there's still still a lot of places to eat, wider concourses, more comfortable, wider seats, uh, better aisles that aren't so steep and narrow, uh, and uh, not least important, plenty of bathrooms, which the old ones never had. So, you know, it does integrate uh, a certain amount of modernity, but within a structure that still feels very traditional. It has uh, pretty good, generally, viewing lines. Um, you feel, from most seats, a pretty decent sense of intimacy and connection with the field, which is incredibly important and which is one thing that we lost in a lot of the concrete donuts, which were th these huge circles that pushed many people, many seats too far away from the field. Um, it's asymmetrical. It's a little bit eccentric. In other words, it doesn't look the same as another ballpark elsewhere. It, it, uh, then the thing is not a, a pure symmetrical shape, uh, picking up on the eccentricity of, of older ballparks. And it kind of fits into the city. You know, you kind of walk naturally to it. And uh, that act of genius, I think, of keeping the old warehouse, that uh, old huge brick warehouse that was right next to the site that originally they'd assumed would be torn down, but then uh, they realized they could keep it. It would be a landmark. The team could put its offices in it. Uh, it would make give the whole thing a certain kind of further identity. Uh, was absolutely right. And so, uh, you know, almost everything about it is likable. It's a place that people like to go. Uh, doesn't always impact on the quality of the team itself, of course, but that's a different discussion. You know, I mean, the, the Orioles are not exactly uh, leading the league, but uh, the fact that they have you know, a loyal fan base that likes to go there is something we really do have to attribute to uh, 
in a way, it's, it's, all the more, it's all the more impressive that people want to go there because it's not a winning team these days. I mean, probably, you know, one should turn that whole idea around and say that that, that makes the uh, ballpark even more impressive. Well, it, it also parallels, right, the, the sort of uh, modern evolution of sports generally, right, where it's more about experience, right, which is, hate to say that the play on the field, uh, baseball not the only sport, of course, uh, being sort of, uh, I don't want to call it a sideshow, but, you know, restaurants and theme park elements. Right, right. There's plenty of distractions and other entertainments, which I think is more the case with baseball than anything else, because, of course, you know, baseball moves more slowly than other sports, and it's it's played in indefinite time, not against the clock. So there's always been, you know, a certain amount of, of uh, sideshow stuff, let's say. I mean, we, we hope that the, um, the game itself is not the sideshow. The, the game itself, hopefully, is the main event, but there are plenty of other sideshows, as, as there always have been. I mean, you know, the, the history of baseball is that. That's not something new in our time, even if they take slightly different form today. Well, the one word that you mentioned earlier was sort of uh, I'll latch onto is sort of this this word eccentricity, right? Uh, and baseball is probably amongst all the major sports in the United States, uh, at least, you know, is is probably prime among the most eccentric sports, right? In terms of the shapes of the diamonds and the the the, the various uh, iterations of of the stadia in which yeah yeah played. totally yeah. totally right. Well, not the shape of the diamond. The diamond, of course, is absolute, but that's the only thing that's absolute. Everything outside of the diamond is kind of up for grabs. And, you know, there are no precise rules about um, the outfield. And it, it is and should be slightly different everywhere, um, which I think is great. I mean, that's part of the tradition of baseball. And, and in, in many, many cases, uh, the shape of ballparks was dictated in part by the uh, the nature of the real estate. I mean, the Green Monster, the most famous example of all at Fenway, is uh, a wall in left field because of the street pattern and the way you know the way the site laid out. Uh, they couldn't uh, extend left field farther to the left if it had to have that wall, um, which became, of course, you know, a, a great defining thing of that particular ballpark. In the old Griffith Stadium, which is now long gone from Washington, D.C., uh, there was actually a notch cut out of right field because there were two houses that, uh, that would not sell when the team was assembling the land to build the ballpark. And so they finally said, you know, gave up and said, all right, we'll build around you. And they did. So, um, you know, that kind of thing, of course, would be unthinkable today. And that's a, a, a more extreme example than we might really want. But, but having a, some things that, that, you know, don't make it look like some huge standardized machine is really, I think, really important to the nature of baseball. Yeah, and I think that's ironic because as, as all these modern structures get built uh, or rebuilt or refurbished or whatever, uh, there's almost a, a desire to sort of link back to some of those idiosyncrasies. And, and I think the challenge, I guess, architecturally as well as thematically is to not make them seem artificial in the reach back for such. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and I, you know, some have criticized Camden Yards for seeming in some aspects, you know, a little too artificial. Uh, one of the ballparks that followed it closely thereafter, which is um, the now called Globe Life in 
Arlington, Texas was for a long time the ballpark at, Ar- Ar- at Arlington, where the Texas Rangers play, um, went even farther in that direction. On the other hand, uh, Cleveland, Jacobs, now progressive, where the All-Star game was this week, uh, is a little more you know, overtly modern and, and, and was an attempt to show that you didn't have to uh, be quite so cutesy and retro. You could still do a baseball-only ballpark that was closely woven into the downtown of a city and open to it and connected to it uh, that was also a little bit more modern. And I, I think it's actually a pretty successful ballpark. Well, I, I'm really uh, curious to go back to your uh, New York uh, situation where uh, a number of years ago, you know, both the Mets and the Yankees had new facilities. And I think it's almost inter- it's especially interesting because I think it the, the way that City Field and the new 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 Yankee Stadium almost diverged, I guess, architecturally in what they were each trying to evoke and or do. And I think, frankly, it balances pretty well with some of the areas that you're talking about in your book. One is that golden age, which seems to me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, what City Field was sort of a, a, a reaching for in sort of its homage, maybe more, more to the Ebbets Field kind of uh, experience, where the Yankee Stadium situation, right, is a continuation and more of a doubling down, I guess, of what, what you call in your book monumentality, very uh, uh, parallel to the Yankees uh, themselves being a, such a big team in, in baseball's history. Yes, yes, absolutely right. I mean, they are very different, even though they were designed by the same firm, which is a firm uh, now called Populous. It's actually the kind of descendant firm of uh, HOK that did Camden Yards. Um, they pride themselves on being responsive to the very different needs of different clients. And uh, that was certainly the case uh, in New York, where you had two ver- teams with very different kind of desires, different histories, different identities. And they got to very, very different ballparks. Um, I find City Field the more appealing of the two because uh, it's just it's a more relaxed place to be in. Uh, the issue I have with City Field isn't with the design of it, which is generally okay. It you know it tries a little too hard in some of that, as you just pointed out. You know the the, the attempt to evoke Ebbets Field in that central rotunda that you go into. Uh, it's okay, but it's a little, a little cute, and a, a little bit. Well, just, I'll just leave it a little too cute. <laughs> it's also very, uh, uh, if I want to call it carnivalesque. There's a lot more to do, it seems, at yeah. City, you know, uh, in and around the park than maybe said the Yankee Stadium experience, which maybe you're going to get to, is more reverential. And yes, you know, it is absolutely. The problem with City Field is that it's a it's a nicely designed urban ballpark without a real urban setting. So, you know, it's still, it's way out in uh, Flushing Meadow, Queens. It's mostly surrounded by parking lots, uh, although it is at least accessible by, by train. You kind of want it to be on a, more on a street. You want to be able to really uh, connect in a different way to it. I, I always wish they'd either built it in Manhattan or in Long Island City, which is a denser part of Queens. It's just across the river from Manhattan. That's been building up hugely in the last few years, and a ballpark would have been a great addition there. Thank you, Robert uh, Moses, right? Uh, yeah, well, Robert Moses wanted the original Shea Stadium where it was uh, because he was responsible, among other things, for 
finding permanent uses for the site of the 1964-65 New York World Fair. And he thought, you know, a, a ballpark there would be exactly right. Uh, but uh, I would have loved to have seen it in the Hudson Yard site in Manhattan or in Long Island City, as I said. And that was very briefly talked about when the decision was made to replace Shea Stadium with a new ballpark. But uh, it didn't go very far, I think largely because it was so much easier to simply build right on that same site and essentially, you know, use the parking area for the new ballpark and then demolish the old one and make the parking there, uh, rather than all the complexities of building in a, d a denser area, particularly over rail tracks and all that, which those sites would have been. So you can understand why the decision was made, but you can still regret that it was made. But, you know, it's a nice place once you get into it. There's no question about that. Um, Yankee Stadium, as you just said, it's a whole other world entirely. And, you know, the Yankees built the most self-consciously monumental ballpark ever in 1923. Uh, it was the first time they had built a home for themselves because they had been tenants of the New York Giants at the Polo Grounds for many years before that. And uh, it was designed truly to reflect the uh, image of the team as this, um, you know, mighty force in baseball that was different from all other teams. It was it's not an accident that it's the first baseball facility that was called a stadium as opposed to a ballpark or a field. And that, that was very intentional to give it, you know, this, again, this sort of more monumental sense of connections, really, and associations. Uh, and they um, all but tried to replicate that in the new one. Uh, so it's not a terribly warm or welcoming place. It, it seems designed more to, to imbue a sense of awe than anything else. Um, if you go back to the earlier days of baseball in New York, um, you know, the Dodgers were a beloved team. People loved the Dodgers. They admired the Yankees, but they didn't love them in quite the same way. And the new Yankee Stadium really plays on that whole history of this of this sort of team that is in some level like above above every above mere mortals. The true sadness of it all, I think, is that how badly they screwed up Yankee Stadium in the iteration that nobody talks about anymore, the in-between one. Because, you know, the original Yankee Stadium was completely renovated in the 1970s. And it was done so badly that um, they took away um, every piece of historic detail and really, you know, charm, if you can describe that as having had charm, uh, of the original building and added almost nothing in uh, exchange for it. Uh, so it became, they, they took a great historic ballpark and turned it into one of those mid-century concrete donuts that had you know, all the charm of a highway overpass. And uh, so when the time came to replace it in the 21st century, uh, I had I, I thought you know why not because the old one had really been destroyed anyway. 
if the original Yankee Stadium had truly been there, then I would have advocated for, for saving it uh, as you know, those handful of great historic ballparks that we do have have been saved, like Fenway and Wrigley. But uh, it was really effectively destroyed in this brutal renovation back in the 70s. So at that this point, well, you know, we might as well start over anyway because anything good is really gone. So uh, they did start over. And I think what we have is better than the mid-70s version, but it's not the great classic ballpark that we once had. And a lot of it does feel like it's kind of rather desperately trying to evoke it but in a way that that seems kind of stage steady to me and a little bit false and and the thing is very big and just too self-consciously grandiose you know as i said it's still better than the version that we've had since the 1970s even if it's not as good as the one from 1923 up to that point. Yeah, that's very interesting. And we had an episode devoted to uh, the uh, the very curious 1975 when Shea Stadium, right, the one of your concrete donuts, right, a, a multi-purpose, right, basically had to hold all four major sports teams that year, both two football and two baseball. Right, and, right, right, right. Which, you know, it did tolerably well. But remember that, you know, when you make a stadium work for football and baseball, it's not going to be ideal for either one, but you know, you can get by and that's kind of what they did. Um, Shea Stadium, by the way, to be fair, was far from the worst of the concrete donuts. Uh, it had a couple of things that I thought, you know, made it a little bit better. One is both in its original version and when it was renovated at some point, uh, midway in its life, it had a kind of more interesting exterior than some of them some of the others. Uh, I mean, at least more decorative, uh, if not seriously great architecture. It was more fun to look at. Uh, the other thing that made it better than many is that it did not, it did not, it, um, it was not a completely enclosed circle, which is all wrong for baseball. There's something about wanting to see open space beyond the outfield that I think is really important to the nature of baseball and to a ballpark feeling right. I mean, of course you have bleachers and something low, but if the high stands go all the way around and close off the space, even if you don't have a roof, it begins to feel a little bit more interior. And having the outfield above the bleachers be open, just psychologically, I think it makes for a better ballpark. Uh, the fact that Shea Stadium was shaped kind of like a horseshoe without the, the upper part filled in uh, made it a little less bad than a lot of the other concrete donuts. Uh, I'll give it that much, definitely. All right, let's take a quick pause. We've got to pay some bills around here. It's not a charity, you know. We want to say hello and welcome again to our friends at The Great Courses Plus. We love The Great Courses Plus. I am certain that you will too. What is The Great Courses Plus, you may ask? Well, I think the best way to describe them is unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Like uh, that, that tagline implies, if there's any topic under the sun, perhaps uh, you want to harken back to your days at college, maybe you haven't yet gotten to college, or maybe you just didn't have the opportunity 
to go to college. Here's an opportunity to kind of delve into a wide array of topics and categories uh, and subjects that, uh, you know, without any exams or, uh, you know, any stress of, of studying uh, in the realms of things like history or science, uh, things like food and wine, maybe health and fitness, uh, economics and law and religion, and in concert with folks like uh, the Smithsonian or National Geographic, uh, the Culinary uh, Institute of America, and yes, even the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum for the current course that we love and uh, we're maybe about uh, seven or eight lectures into right now. Uh, it is fascinating. Again, it's called Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. Uh, it is uh, narrated and presented and taught uh, by Bruce Markison of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Uh, and uh, again, a lot of different uh, interesting uh, discussional topics, uh, some of which we've scratched the surface on uh, in our uh, various episodes. There's a lecture devoted to baseball's relationship with the press. Very interesting stuff. The uh, statistical history and beginnings of baseball and why it's become uh, arguably the most uh, statistically uh, detailed sport of all the sports. Uh, in the United States, uh, how the players and owners and the, this thing called the reserve clause. We've had a number of episodes devoted to that. The economics of baseball, uh, scandals and deception on the diamond. There's a whole lecture devoted to that and and many, many more up to uh, what is it? 24 uh, lectures in video form. And it's, by the way, available online. You can uh, download the app. Uh, it streams to any device. Uh, and that app, like I said, which streams to any device, you can also download all of the coursework uh, onto your device. Let's say you're not going to be near an internet connection, or uh, you can also listen to it in audio only fashion. So let's say you're driving or doing something else that uh, requires your eyesight, but uh, allows you to listen. That is how cool all this stuff is. Again, it's the Great Courses Plus, and uh, we have a special offer for our listeners uh, to not only enjoy the uh, entire series of Play Ball, uh, but also all of the courses available to you at The Great Courses Plus. Uh, and that uh, website is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. Again, thegreatcoursesplus, all one word, dot com slash goodseats. And you're going to get one free month, no uh, strings attached, uh, yours for a limited time for all of the courses, not just the baseball coursework, but all of the courses at The Great Courses Plus. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You're going to get a free month of unlimited use to stream any of the courses uh, at not only baseball, but any of the topics and the hundreds of other lectures and series available to you. And we thank our friends at The Great Courses Plus. Again, one more time, The Great Courses Plus dot com slash good seats hope you enjoyed as much as i have been so far and uh, we also hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation coming up right now what i find fascinating in in this book uh is uh, is is sort of the almost elemental or foundational uh pieces of baseball as well as its relationship to to urban america you know sort of feeling its way through what is the right and proper structure for this game, which itself, right, as you do go all the way back to the earliest days of, of professionalism in baseball, right, wasn't even a professional exploit back in, you know, what is really no, 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 it, it became, it became professional gradually. And in fact, you know, the rise of the ballpark is very much, you know, something that, that tracks the increasing professionalism of it. Because of course, you know, as it was, bec it was initially a sport 
for the players themselves. And they were low, you know, New York and Brooklyn is just one example, had, you know, dozens and dozens of local teams, sometimes just, you know, little neighborhoods would have their own teams and they'd play the team in the next neighborhood or teams grew up around uh, factories and, and working places and so forth. And uh, they all played each other in various local leagues. And then it began to become a cool thing just to go watch them. And it began to transition toward being a spectator sport and gradually became, you know, our first significant professional sport in America. But um, that's a transition that, that, that took some years and, uh, and happened in fits and starts. So when you sort of go into some of, of these parks and stuff, are there any, you know, I, I look at the golden age, right? The Crossleys in, of Cincinnati and the, in the Fenway, I was at Wrigley Field yesterday, as a matter of fact, watching a beautiful afternoon, somewhat more rare, frankly, in Chicago these games at, at Chicago Cubs. We've got two truly, you know, original Golden Age survivors in Fenway and Wrigley. But there seems to be, I don't know, maybe this is just my sort of little corner of history exploration, but there just seemed to be sort of a, a warm glow uh, as people reminisce about these stadiums from that Golden Age I'm sure there are various reasons for it, but uh, are, are there any of those that kind of stand out in your mind uh, as being sort of more uh, intriguing or well done or frankly lacking? Because they all had their quirks. They all had their sort of special parts in yeah. people's hearts, right? Especially if they grew up in those respective cities. And they probably probably steamroll over some of the, I don't know, the the the, the miscues or, the, or the, the issues with them. But But from your sort of more... Uh, objective eye, I guess. Uh, are there ones that you think were really sort of the the ultimate expressions of, of harmony between baseball and the city, and and or, or ones that just kind sure. of got it wrong? You know, none of them got it totally wrong because even even the the worst of them was better than uh, you know so much of what we did in mid century. I'd say my sense, but I was never actually there, is that uh, you know almost nothing was quite like Ebbets Field. Now some of that came from the thing itself. Some of it came from the whole kind of ambiance around the Dodgers, which were a, a very strong, but it also kind of weirdly lovable and eccentric team. And they, there was something uh, a little bit flamboyant about both them and their fans, and very, very different from, as I said, the kind of more Olympian quality of the Yankees. And so in the way of its field just kind of fit into that part of Brooklyn. And uh, it was just kind of there and everything was kind of grand and shabby at the same time. Uh, that, that wonderful combination of, of kind of funkiness and grandeur, you might say. I think Ebbets seems to have expressed that uh, as well as any place there's ever, that's ever been. Two ballparks that I particularly regret that we lost as well are uh, Forbes Field in um, Pittsburgh, which was very beautiful and was actually the only one to be in a kind of park and cultural area a little bit away from downtown. So it was a sort of unusual sighting and had a kind of elegance to it that uh, not all of the early ballparks did. I think Scheib in uh, Philadelphia was possibly the grandest of all, the one that, you know, if you drove by it on the side near home plate, 
where where the you know the structure was largest rather than the other side of the site near the outfield, you could think you were passing an opera house, not a not a ballpark. Um, and you know the the sort of monumental grandeur of that, but then the drama of going into it and then wham, you're out in this magical, beautiful field. Uh, I mean that's the quality that that all ballparks should give you. And it's so special when you experience it. It was particularly powerful there. As, by the way, to be fair, it always was at Yankee Stadium, too, when you would kind of go through those tunnels and boom, you know, you just come out and you see this most amazing, magnificent, intense green and the the balance of nature and the man-made becomes more powerfully expressed almost than in any other structure I know. I mean, that's that's the magic of a great ballpark, really. Is, is the way it can do that. Um, so, you know, those are the ones I think are or would have been my favorites, but uh, many of them were before my time and I never experienced them. I think the great sadness in recent years is the loss of Tiger Stadium, which was uh, kind of funny, very funky, disheveled place that was added to in fits and starts and bits and pieces over the years was not ever a single coherent piece of design the way Ebbets Field was or the way um, Forbes Field or Scheib Park were, but just had a wonderful kind of comfort to it as well as a staggering amount of history to it and a beautiful sense of integration into you know, an old, the old Corktown neighborhood in Detroit. What makes it, to me, all the sadder is that uh, when we lost it, it was in the 2000s, a time when in this country, the consciousness and recognition of the value of historic buildings and historic places was pretty well established. You know, you can't say, as you could say about the loss of Ebbets Field, well, you know, it was the 1950s, who knew people were still kind of enamored with the automobile, with suburbia, nobody had yet really figured out that all this stuff was coming at a huge price and that we were giving up some things that we would come to regret later. You know, in the 1950s, America was obsessed with the new and with the promise of the new. And it took a couple of more decades before we realized that, um, you know, this, this, all these gifts came at a price. And, uh, we were losing some things that we were coming to regret that we were losing. So, um, so I'm a, even though I deeply regret that we lost Ebbets Field, you can kind of understand that uh, back then they kind of didn't know better. Well, you know, by the time we lost Tiger Stadium, everybody knew better, and it truly should not have been able to happen, but nevertheless, it did. I think it's interesting, too, that um, of the ones that have survived for various reasons, Fenway and Wrigley are the ones that have. And 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 I don't want to raise the ire of our passionate Boston and Chicago fans, but I and maybe I'll ask your opinion and I can maybe sort of alleviate some of the pressure on me. Would you say that those are among the better ones that that frankly deserve to last, you know, and, and be preserved? I mean, I think it's great to have it sort of be versus not having them. But I I guess if I looked at the entire golden age, I'm not sure these would be the top two that I would want to see. Well, probably. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I would 
cautiously agree with you, but I don't want to give any energy or any any ammunition to anybody who would uh, say we shouldn't continue to keep them. Neither do I. I'm just, I'm just, right. you look at all of those things and some of these ones that you're describing and, and Wrigley is, is charming and has been kept up. But, but, you know, back in the earliest days, I, you know, it was, it was not bad, but not maybe what you were describing earlier with a Forbes or a Shibe. Right, right. Well, I think both Wrigley and Fenway are now places that because they are the only survivors, a kind of mythology has now grown up around them, and they've become uh, sacred in a way that, uh, you know, they were never intended to be. I mean, they were, you know, pretty functional places that also, you know, were not, neither of them was quite as self-consciously grand a piece of architecture as some of the others were. I think that's kind of the, maybe the point you're getting at here, that, that, that Ebbets and Scheib and Forbes uh, were certainly more consciously planned as sort of serious architecture with a capital A, even though they were also ballparks. And uh, Fenway and Wrigley were, you know, a little more functional, a little, a little plainer and basic, really. Uh, they also, of course, both evolved a huge amount over time. Neither of them looked the way they do now. Uh, while we still have the original facade of Fenway on Jersey Street, um, you know, when, when it opened, it was a one-deck ballpark. It did not even have an upper deck. It was a much smaller facility, and over the years, it was added to many times and uh, changed, as was Wrigley, the most famous element of Wrigley, of course, you know, the ivy on the walls was added in 1937. It was not part of the original design at all. But, you know, I love the the way they are sort of funky and practical and yet grand at the same time. You know, very, very rarely do we get to experience places that are both of those things at once. And I, I love the way these ballparks do that. I, I was hoping... And I'm glad, I'm relieved that you were not asking me to tell you which is my favorite of the two. You know, I love them both. I'm grateful that we have them both. We could have lost either one of them and came actually fairly close to losing Fenway because the prior ownership of the uh, Red Sox was fairly far along in plans to replace it when uh, the team changed hands and the current ownership uh, said no. We uh, we think we can renovate it to meet our needs, and we do not want to replace it. And committed to staying. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was trying to make up my mind about the two, and I actually looked at uh, the schedule and found a period where there was a home game, a back-to-back home games. One Red Sox one night, and the next night the Cubs were playing at home. And so I could see both ballparks within a 24-hour period. And I figured, all right, I'll really now make up my mind which is the one that I really prefer. And uh, I did it. I had a great time. It was one of the nicest 24 hours of my life. But at the end of it, I really decided I loved them both. 
they're not exactly the same, but I would never want, it's like choosing between your children and, you know, you don't want to make any choices there at all. I definitely said, and I didn't mean to set you up or put you on the spot, but I, I that's, uh, I think that's very well put. And, and, and as, as only a Pulitzer prize winning architecture, uh, critic could, uh, could do. Uh, and I, I humbly bow in your direction. <laughs> You're kind to say that, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm admitting failure in my attempt to sort of determine which, which one's actually better. You know, in the end, they're both they're both really good. Now, one one interesting thing, by the way, is that the renovations have proceeded in slightly different ways in these two ballparks, and the Cubs have done a huge amount of work underground in creating new support facilities, uh, training rooms, locker rooms, club rooms, and so forth, because they could do that without disturbing the original structure. The Ground conditions at Fenway don't permit that, and so they really had to try to improve things and expand things within the original footprint without doing that kind of expansion. And uh, so what's happened at Fenway is a little bit more subtle than what's happened at uh, at Wrigley. All right, I want to ask a couple more questions, and I promise to let you go on this beautiful summer day, at least here in the Midwest, hopefully where you are too. Yeah, no, it is, it's absolutely beautiful. So yeah. what perfect way to spend a, spend a Saturday afternoon as we're recording this, uh, indoors uh, in air conditioning. <laughs> it's true. It's true. At least we're talking about baseball. There you go. So I guess there, there are two, uh, I guess, structures that I, I really would love just your just general opinion on. Um, uh, and both of them feel like outliers to me and maybe are hints of what well, ne- my next question will be is sort of where do we go from where we are today going forward in baseball uh, uh, structures? One is the Polo Grounds in in New York, the old Polo Grounds, which has uh, a very is very much its own story. We've had a couple of episodes kind of uh, have skirted into it, and the memories uh, and the hagiography, I guess, of some of it. Yeah. And the other is Dodger Stadium, which you know is a jewel uh, and still remains as a, a place from its original destination of the Brooklyn uh, team in in fifty seven. But they're both. I'm just curious as to hear your sort of opinions about both of those, and then maybe it's a construct of of where maybe our future goes with baseball and uh, right, right, sure. The Polo Grounds was was a, a bit of an outlier, um, a really wonderful place, but in its more or less final in iteration, which uh, was built in 1911, uh, so it's really it was a very old ballpark. It was, you know had that huge long center field, and it was symmetrical, which is usually the wrong thing to do, but. You know, every rule has its exception, and that was the exception. There, you know, um, it uh, in the same way that the rule or my rule about not enclosing a ballpark completely and making it more like a horseshoe and having space above the bleachers so that you can kind of feel more of the flow of space beyond the outfield um, was violated by Tiger Stadium, which, as it was added to and expanded over the years, became enclosed. It was, I think, the only one of the ballparks from the great classic period that ended up actually as an enclosed ballpark. So every rule has its exception. And I think the Polo Grounds was actually in some ways wonderful for being that exception. And in its early iteration, before it kind of declined and was really not cared for particularly, it was an incredibly grand and elegant ballpark. Um, you know, it's important to remember that the Giants were, at the time, at that time, early in the 20th century, they were the preeminent team in New York 
by far. The Yankees were there, were very much the secondary team and were there, became their tenants in the polo grounds. Uh, and it was only after the uh, Yankees signed this character from Boston, whatever his name was, you know, <laughs> Babe Ruth or something, um, that, that things began to change and they became this great power team and the whole mythology of the Yankees began. But, um, you know, the, the Polo Grounds was a very cool place as much because it was, it broke the rules because it followed them. And that, you know, amazing long straight center field and the kind of almost bathtub like shape of it. Uh, it's, as I said, you know, it's what you're not supposed to do, but in fact, it kind of worked there and you love it anyway. And so the eccentricity there was almost symmetry, you know, strange as that may seem. Dodger Stadium, I think, is such a fascinating and amazing and, and, and complicated story and, and, and too long a one to really talk about just in answer to your question. I mean, it's now the third oldest stadium in active use in the major leagues. And uh, it was also, in its way, an exception in its time because in this generally bad era of large concrete donut mixed-use stadiums, it was always built as baseball only, which is a key distinction. It has a very kind of gracious, easy quality. It's a, it's a lovely place to be in and watch a baseball game in. It may be the most difficult ballpark to get into and get out of because of L.A. traffic and because it was tragically not designed for access by anything other than private cars because um, it really does emerge out of exactly what I was referring to before, which was that moment in the, in the mid-20th century when we were so entranced by the automobile, nobody, it had not occurred to anybody that this thing of wonderful liberation, the car, would also become a force of strangulation in time. Uh, because, you know, in the 50s, traffic in L.A. was not what it is now. And so everybody thought how wonderful, you know, lots of freeways, we'll all drive to the ballpark and we'll make a nice big ballpark and have parking for tens of thousands of cars and nobody really thought very much about how difficult that could be. Until but, Elon Musk with his tunnel, we'll see if that right. happens in 2020. Well, you know, look, right? if that happens, so much the better. I mean, I think they, they're going to need Elon Musk's tunnel and the gondola that they talk about and everything else. Uh, you know, another thing that makes it sort of sad and ironic is that it's very close to downtown. It faces in the opposite direction, but when you are sort of behind the ballpark or getting somewhere to eat in some of those concourses and looking in the other direction from the field, you know, you, you see that the skyline of downtown LA is right there, but it's also impossible to get to unless you drive. So it's a little crazy, but it is, it's both a wonderful place and a frustrating place at the same time. Other question you asked, I think was, is a really uh, important one, uh, which is where's it all going? I think what we're seeing most of all now is an attempt by ownership to control and therefore profit from the world outside the gates of the ballpark as well as everything inside the ballpark. And sometimes that plays out in a you know, reasonably benign way, like at um, Wrigleyville, 
where the current ownership of the Cubs, you know, has purchased a lot of the land around the ballpark, now controls the rooftops of those old houses uh, that used to be independent competition, uh, but, and even more notably, has built an office building for the team, has built a hotel across the street, and is increasingly kind of cleaning up Wrigleyville and making it a somewhat more generic, upscale urban neighborhood. Uh, that's not the worst thing in the world, but it also is kind of saddening to lose some of the, the rough edges of Wrigleyville. It saddens me, but I don't think it's devastating, and I'm much happier that, we're, that that's happening than as if, than if we had lost Wrigley altogether. Similarly, in uh, St. Louis, you know, the Cardinals now control uh, or are building what they call Ballpark Village, on the site of the former Bush Stadium, which is across the street from the present Bush Stadium, uh, and that will have bars and restaurants and uh, even condo apartments and so forth. Uh, it's not bad, and in fact, you know, at least it's all right there in downtown St. Louis. Again, it may be a little generic and a little corporate in its tone, and I, I would have rather seen that site chopped up and done in a less corporate sort of way, but um, it's not a terrible thing. The part of that trend that I think is really disturbing is how it's playing out in a third city, which is Atlanta. Yep, I knew where, you were there. Yep. Yeah, where now there, this this idea of let's profit from what's just outside the gates goes from being benign. To, or relatively benign, let's say, to having a, a I think, more disturbing implication. Uh, you know, as you know, the, the Braves moved away from downtown Atlanta at a time when so many other teams are, have been moving toward downtown and bought 60 acres in Cobb County and did this enormous development, which they call the Battery at Atlanta, which is basically like a kind of theme park city with bars and restaurants and a hotel and some condos all along a kind of pretend street and uh, the new ballpark at the end of it. The best thing you can say about it is that it's better than the earlier generation of suburban ballparks that were stadiums surrounded by dozens and dozens of acres of asphalt for parked cars. At least they understand that people want an urban environment to walk around in as part of the experience of going to a ball game. But why couldn't they do it in the real urban environment where they had been? You know, their claim is that the city was not cooperative when they wanted to acquire land and develop around Turner Field, the old ballpark in downtown Atlanta. I don't know enough of the history of that to know how true that is or whether there might have been other downtown options entirely where they could have done a completely new project rather than stayed at Turner Field. Uh, but what I do know is that, you know, they've made a kind of Disneyland out there that I find a little strange. And uh, it's also saddening that, you know, Cobb County is the only county in uh, metropolitan Atlanta that is not part of the regional transit system. And there's no way to get there except by car. So they are creating a system not unlike 
Dodger Stadium. And uh, let's say you're a, a minority kid in downtown Atlanta, and Atlanta is a majority African-American city now. Without the resources to get a car and drive to Cobb County, you can't go to the ball game anymore. And so that's a, that's a great sadness. Uh, I don't know that there is was racial racist intent in that decision, but it does have at least the implications of that, even if that was not thought and intended by the team. Well, the other irony of all that is that uh, the Braves, right, are the longest uh, consecutive uh, professional baseball team. The Reds are sort of in the mix, I guess, debatable too, but in terms of consecutive... Yes, Boston, Milwaukee, Atlanta. Yeah, right. and if they, if right. that's the, you know, and that's, it just, it, it raises the eyebrow, right? Because if that is what the future looks like, given that this is sort of the most legacy rich and consecutively uh, running team, yeah. uh, you wonder where we're going. Yeah, no, I, it makes me wonder a lot, really. And I think in the end, it's saying that, you know, baseball is going to be for upper middle class white audiences primarily. And I, I think that's probably not a healthy thing either. Um, I was fascinated by uh, a statistic somebody gave me the other day, said that, um, you know, as we watch professional soccer grow gradually in stature in this country, Apparently, right now, the most successful and lucrative team in the country is Atlanta. And I wonder if a lot of that isn't because they play right downtown and have picked up a lot of the many uh, recent immigrants, also, you know, minority group fans who might have been baseball fans had the team stayed there and have switched to going to soccer games. Yeah, that's that. That's very interesting. I, which actually leads me, I guess, to my last question. And uh, some of this is, I guess, rooted in what you might do next, as well as uh, that of other sports, right? So let me start on the other sports side. Football, right, has its own sort of interesting and twisting sort of history with stadiums and 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 environments in which they've played over the years. Uh, does that interest you similarly to that of uh, of your uh, exploration of of and your treatise on baseball, and and then you know, arguably the cathedral-like uh, approach to that, you know, also probably has some kind of uh, implication about what structures and sports look like going yeah. too beyond baseball. Well, you know, it's interesting the whole question of football because I don't think football has yet yielded anything that reaches the level of a great baseball park, <laughs> and and what you don't have and never had historically was the kind of integration into the urban fabric that makes baseball so interesting. So for that reason, I would be inclined to say no. On the other hand, uh, I'm always intrigued by you know how any sport plays out and the relationship of the design of a place to how people behave in it and what they do in it and how they function in it and so forth. Um, I mean, the other thing that I think is so key to football of course, it's the culture of tailgating, which requires cars. It's not part of the culture of baseball. And it also tends to kind of contradict a lot of the things that interest me most in this book, which is the whole relationship to a city and to history and urban fabric and so forth. But we'll see. You know, I mean, there's, you know, things keep evolving and keep developing and changing. And I have yet to see a football stadium that 
sort of moves my heart the way great baseball parks do. <laughs> but it, exciting as football can be, and much as I like going to games, it's a different experience very much. Um, but maybe, you know, we'll see. You're not the first person to ask me that question, and I'm trying to be as completely honest and say I haven't really decided. I don't know. No, I, it's, a, I, it's a fair answer. And I, again, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I, I think no, actually, no, it's fine. It's fine. You, you mentioned it's soccer. I think it's interesting. Yeah. So a lot of we've done a lot of soccer exploration here too, and then the. And the, mm-hmm. the the relatively old yet, frankly, very still new history of, of the sport of soccer in the United States. It's, it's complicated, but it's interesting, too, how the soccer specific stadium concept has really basically been sort of uh, uh, the, the mantra of Major League Soccer now going, you know, almost uh, approaching its 25th uh, year. It's even within that sort of small window, this sort of debate. I mean, it's only been like in handful of year cycles, right, where a stadium that's uh, uh, soccer specific, it's smaller uh, it's outside maybe the outskirts of the, of the city. And now you sort of see almost a, a mini return to that, right? The embrace of Portland and the march of the of the fans in downtown Seattle. And you mentioned Atlanta. Yeah. So I, the really, it's, it's really, I think it's playing out in a more accelerated fashion. As I think it is too. And, and with, with soccer, I think I'm actually very excited to see how it will continue to play out. And the next five years will be very interesting. And it, it could well be, you know, certainly in Europe, there have been some phenomenal soccer stadiums built. And, uh, and in fact, their history is more interesting in a way because, of course, the game has such long and deep roots there that, in a way, make it more analogous to baseball here in the sense that it's kind of like the, you know, the original sport that people had passions about and everybody followed. And so I think, unlike baseball, which is played elsewhere, but its important roots are so completely here. I think soccer, if you're going to do a book on great places where soccer is played, has to be an international book, not an American book. All right. So there's there's another thing for you to pursue. So uh, it sounds like your plate, your plate is full of choices. Before that happens, how, uh, time to promote. Uh, tell us about this book, which is glorious. And, uh, and and as I think you say in the preface of this, is this is not an encyclopedia. This is a narrative. And that's, that's what makes this book very special. Absolutely right. Yes, yes. You know, um, and in fact, I have a little note at the beginning of it that says, explains why I don't talk very much about Negro League ballparks, minor league ballparks, although a few of them do make it in, university and college ballparks, or ones out of the U.S. Uh, not because they're not interesting. A lot of them are very interesting and very important parts of history. But it would then have been simply too much and the book would have been an encyclopedia. And I didn't want to be just jumping from one to the next to the next. I really wanted to tell a narrative of how a whole form of building, a whole building type developed and what it means for our culture, how it related to American cities, and of course, how it related to the development of the sport itself and how all those things kind of weave together. So uh, it had to be done as a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, as opposed to a, you know, a book that was arranged geographically or arranged by type or style or anything else. I, there are a couple of books on stadiums that I've seen that are done by cities and uh, sometimes alphabetically, sometimes geographically, east to west or something. I mean, and they're fine as reference books or guidebooks, but they don't really tell a story. And I wanted this book to tell a story of from the early days of baseball when it was really played in sandlots and casual fields and the edge of cities and things 
to uh, all the way how we got from there through the great uh, Victorian wooden structures of the late 19th century and then to uh, the golden age of the early ballparks of the 20th century, to the concrete donuts, to everything we've been doing post-Camden Yards now, and how the game itself evolved in these different places and the cities evolved and so forth and so on. They all wind, weave together, really. And so uh, I think it's a great story, really, when you look at all the pieces of it together. Uh, you know, at one point, somebody was asking me about this book, and I said, you know, the most amazing thing I discovered researching it is that baseball connects to everything. That's, that, that, for me, was the most exciting thing, because there's, there are things in it that are about, about immigration struggles. We think they're new today. You know, they go right back to the 19th century history of baseball. We know, of course, about racial struggles, but urban planning issues, everything. It, it all connects to baseball and plays out in one way or another. All right. Our thanks to Paul. This has opened up a whole Pandora's box of, uh, of, of questions and uh, further investigations that uh, I'd love personally would love to go deeper in. And I hope we get the opportunity uh, maybe to go deeper with Paul in a future episode or certainly some other specific ballparks and their particular roles in the histories of their cities and their uh, franchises, whether they are still continuing or housed teams that are uh, no longer with us. And uh, regardless, uh, that's always going to be of, uh, of intrigue for us and this little show. I do want to, uh, again, remind you that the book is called Ballpark Baseball in the American City. It is published by Knopf. It is available in hardback form uh, wherever good books are found. If you can uh, find it in your heart to go to our website at goodseatstillavailable.com and search up this episode, number 123, with Paul Goldberger, why don't you buy the copy of a book there through our friends at Amazon and give us a few shekels of love? Why don't you keep our lights on by doing so? And we appreciate that, certainly. Paul's also written a ton of other great stuff around architecture critiques and a seminal book called Why Architecture Matters uh, is worth your time. And if you fancy yourself a fan or just intrigued with uh, the work of master uh, architect Frank Gehry, uh, you should check out Paul's book called Building Art, The Life and Work of Frank Gehry. Just a few of the many titles that uh, Paul has authored, and you will find uh, his Pulitzer Prize winning writing in places like Vanity Fair as well on an ongoing basis. You can find out not only more about this episode and that book, on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, but all of our episodes are all of our other 122 up till now episodes. All of them are available for you to download or to stream. You've got all kinds of uh, links to great photos around all of those episodes or links to uh, the books or, or other forms of media that we've uh, referenced during those conversations. And of course, you can find all of our social media feeds there too, such as Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. On Facebook, there's a page devoted to us. You, you know, it, it doesn't take much to find us and stay in contact with us on all those social platforms. You can, uh, of course, on our website, go to our little link and uh, subscribe to our little weekly email we send out each and every week, kind of giving you a tip sheet on what we're going to be talking about. Let's see what else. You can also send us email either from the website or directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And gee, I don't know what else, but uh, I guess we should also thank our friends, as we try to do each and every week at Podfly Productions and our pal Jerry Payne, who helps produce this little uh, 
show, Graham, puts all of our pieces together and makes us sound somewhat coherent. And uh, we thank him and them for uh, their efforts in helping us do that. And you can find out more about Podfly at podfly.net. All right, I'm done for this week and uh, more fun and frivolity coming your way next week, we hope, knock on wood. Until then, our ticket window is now closed and I thank you tremendously for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye.